I think the greatest day of my life is when I found God through salvation and His Son. And with that, with the package came truth, finally. What is truth? I found the source of truth. Our Creator has given to us an instruction manual. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, would He just put us on this earth and it's kind of a free-for-all and just say, you know, anything goes? No. We have an instruction manual, the Word of God. And so we have an authority We have an authority. Thank God for that. It doesn't have to be the opinions of man, the swaying persuasions that drift continually. We have an authority. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn once again to the Gospel of Mark and the 11th chapter, Mark chapter 11. We're going to see today the Sanhedrin, made up of the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. and, And this group has a problem with Jesus Christ. They consider themselves the custodians of orthodoxy at that time, defenders of the faith, and and the rabbis over all the Jewish traditions that have been preserved down through the years. And uh, they're going to challenge this unorthodox Messiah, so-called, from Nazareth, of all places, up in Galilee, Jesus Christ. They're coming to him, and they're going to ask him in so many words, how dare you come into our temple and throw us out of it? Let's pick it up here in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse number 27. It says, And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question, and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people, for all the men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. I don't know if you noticed the word authority in this passage here. It kept popping up over and over again. That's what we're going to be talking about today. What about authority? Let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask you to help us listen at this time. Help us to glean a truth out of this that will empower us as God's people. That will help us to stand, realizing we have the proper stand, and we have the proper foundation, and we have the proper authority. And Father, I pray for those who are here and have a house that is built on sand without a proper foundation, without proper authority. They'd realize what they built their house upon and seek proper authority, thy authority. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think it's safe to say that everybody has their own set of beliefs and opinions, uh, convictions maybe even, or preferences at the very least. But, But everybody has a viewpoint. Everybody has a persuasion. 
You can talk to folks and they'll give you their viewpoint, their persuasion, their opinion, uh, maybe their convictions. And, and uh, it may be right, it, not, it may not be right. What is right? What is wrong? What is orthodox? What is non-orthodoxy? You know, things have uh, really taken a free fall, and especially in these last days. There are things going on today that um, even back when I was in high school would have been unthinkable. And, and the perception of people has changed so much, they're kind of going, what? What's wrong with it? We don't see any problem. And things that were once shameful aren't shameful anymore. You know, things that were unacceptable are now acceptable. And again, where's it going to end? Because we're taking our cue from each other. We're polling ourselves, if you can imagine that, and saying, well, you know, public persuasion now is over here, so let's just move it over here. And we are like a uh, ship that is adrift without an anchor, and, and we just keep sliding over. Anything goes now. Laws are being passed today. No way that have been passed 25 years ago. But our times are changing. Politically, we're continually drifting. I'm thinking of a, a U.S. senator that we had, oh, maybe 15, 20 years ago over in, in Minnesota who was, of the 100 senators, ranked the most liberal. And yet there were some things he said, I draw the line there. I, I can't cross that line. I can't go for that. And I'm talking about issues that today the President of the United States consents to. What's happened? Well, we've continued to drift. You know that Kennedy, who would have been a liberal Democrat in his day, would be a conservative Republican by today's standard. Does that paint the picture for you? You see what's happening. In fact, Ronald Reagan was a Democrat in the early days. Maybe you don't know that. But he changed and became a Republican. And, of course, the uh, Democrats chided him for that. And he said, well... He goes, I didn't leave you, you left me. And that's the truth. <laughs> he kept his position, but they kept sliding over. You know, education-wise, I'm telling you, the books are being rewritten, figuratively and literally. I mean, it's all being changed. And the bottom line is anyone who, who anchors to a standard is going to get run over by the culture. It's changing so much. If you put your roots down, we have this moving culture that's going to run you over. If you say, no, I, enough, I, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to take this position because it's right. That's the bottom line. So the burning question is, what is the truth? Wasn't that Pilate's question? What is truth? Where is the truth? What's orthodox? I don't know if you read the editorials in the forum I don't. Maybe once in a blue moon I'll come home from church on a Sunday night and I'll, I'll look through them. But honestly, they're just a, a bunch of opinions. Again, you know, I think this or I think that or here's my belief, here's my conviction, here's my preference, here's my standard. You have the talking heads every night on national television just mulling this stuff over and I don't watch it. I might be in a restaurant and look up and, and listen to a little bit here, but I really have no time for the opinions of man. They're a dime a dozen, aren't they? And everybody has them. You know, they're based on the polls, basically, which is, it's laughable and it's tragic at the same time. You know, we poll each other and we go, okay, this is where it sits now. Uh, we have this public opinion and it's continually moving. And where is it going to stop? This drifting ship without an anchor has now brought us into what I call the post-Christian era. We are living now in a post, I think in this nation, a post-Christian era. I think the greatest day of my life is when I found God through salvation in His Son. And with that, with the package came truth, finally. 
What is truth? I found the source of truth. Our Creator has given to us an instruction manual. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, would He just put us on this earth and it's kind of a free-for-all and just say, you know, anything goes? No. We have an instruction manual, the Word of God. And so we have an authority. We have an authority. Thank God for that. It doesn't have to be the opinions of man, the swaying persuasions that drift continually. We have an authority. We're going to be talking about that. They come to Jesus Christ here in Mark chapter 11. They have a question for him. Where do you get your authority? Who do you think you are? Let's take a look at this passage here. We see, first of all, the contentious rivals. In verse 27, it says, And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Oh boy, something's brewing here. Here it comes, right? Notice we find Jesus Christ walking in the temple. Now, it's about early April. We can relate to that. It's about 30 AD. That's the time period. And, and we find Jesus Christ coming into the temple. Maybe a fulfillment of Malachi 3 and verse 1, which says, And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. It's his final week on this earth, as far as his ministry is concerned. He's spending a few days here in the temple. We find him walking to the temple. It was about a two-mile walk there from uh, Bethany. And, and now he gets to the temple, and he's walking in the temple. In fact, one account in Matthew says he's teaching. Here in Mark, it tells us that he is walking. And you say, well, which was he doing? Both. I think the two miles into the temple, he's teaching his disciples. I think he gets into the temple, and this was common amongst rabbis. They would walk, and they would talk. And they would teach. And the Lord Jesus Christ never lost an opportunity to teach. If it was Nicodemus sneaking out to him at night, he was teaching him. If it was a woman at the well there in John chapter 4 at Sychar's well, he was teaching her. He always was teaching. And the, the rabbis at that time would walk and they would teach. In fact, we read in John 10.23 that Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. You say, well, didn't he have better things to do? Just walk around the temple? No, no. That was a place of, of instruction and learning. And Christ would just walk and he would talk and he would teach. It's his final days in the temple. So what is he teaching? I thought about that this last week. Probably by this point after three, three and a half years, it's all review. Maybe he's uh, teaching again about the, the wretchedness of sin. Maybe he's teaching about the folly of hypocrisy using all this religiosity to make a point there. Maybe he's teaching about the, uh, the uh, false religion of the time and the legalism of it and how fruitless it was and hopeless it really was. Maybe he was teaching about the uh, folly of pretentious prayer like the uh, Pharisees were doing or the superficial religious tradition and deeds that they were up to or maybe just the spiritual pride that they were full of or the divine judgment that was coming. It could have been a number of things. But we find in verse 27 that somebody came to him. Notice it says, And there come again, and they, that is Jesus and the disciples, come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, there come to him, here they are, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. I wonder what's on their mind. <laughs> they got thrown out of their temple the day before here. <laughs> that was the final straw. It really was. I mean, three years of animosity has been building here. The Pharisees couldn't stand Christ. And, and along with the Sadducees, who, by the way, they totally disagreed theologically with, but 
You know, uh, a common enemy makes for strange bedfellows. And so they have the chief priests, they have the scribes, they have the elders, and, and they're all just seething. There's a hostility within their heart here. Their heart is a headquarters for hate, and, and, and they're still seething from a few days earlier when Christ had made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem like a king, and the people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they're saying, hey, shut those people up. Uh, tell them to knock it off. And Christ says, there has got to be praise here. And so they're, they're, uh, they're mad about that. But then Christ comes in and he cleanses the temple. He turns over their money tables. He drives them out and gets rid of all the animals. And the nerve of this guy, I mean a Nazarene, I mean a, a guy from Galilee coming to their temple, their home turf, and doing that. So they're infuriated. And they get together and, and they have a powwow, seething mad. Here's the, the greatest minds in Israel, theologically at that time, coming together and trying to figure out what to do with this common enemy. I mean, strumming their fingers and stroking their beard. And, and there they are, full of rage. And, and uh, Christ has cut into their business, bottom line, and uh, hurt them in the pocketbook. And so they're raging about this. I think of Psalm 2 and verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the rulers of Israel now coming together trying to figure out what to do with this guy. In verse 27, we find out they come together. And in verse 28, they say unto Christ, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? Translated, just who do you think you are? <laughs> Can you imagine? You kicked us out of our temple. Who do you think you are? Where do you get your authority? Good question. Did Christ have any authority to do any of these things? Are you kidding? We read in John 3.35, Jesus says, The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. All things have been given into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd say he has authority. In fact, later on, he would say in Matthew 28, 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Imagine that. That's some authority. Here is the Lord saying, I possess all power in heaven and in earth. And by the way, it's missions month here at Fargo Baptist Church, and that is a great missions passage that tells us that we have been given a responsibility to reach the world. This commission was given to his church, and we find here him saying, I've given you the power to go with it. He had all power. Why? Because he had all authority. And Jesus Christ proved that authority over and over again. Demons were no match for him. He would cast out devils and they would have to obey him. Any disease would be cast out. Any death could be overcome. He had all authority. He could forgive sins. Think about it. That's authority. By the way, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be the ultimate judge. We find this in John 5, 22. Christ says, The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, and hath given him authority to execute judgment. You know, the bottom line with people who don't want to believe in God is they really don't want anyone over them, for the most part. Even evolution is kind of like embraced because it kind of gets rid of the fact that one day I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account to myself. Jesus Christ is going to be the ultimate judge. He said, The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That's authority. And hath given him authority to execute judgment. 
One day we are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kind of authority that he possesses. Authority over death, authority over hell. By the way, those two things used to scare me to death. Death and hell. Christ has authority over those things. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. You don't have to fear death or hell if you're on the Lord's side because he has the keys to them. The bottom line in the truth is this. I love this passage. Philippians 2.9 says, Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, speaking of Christ, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Every knee should bow to the Lord Jesus Christ because he has that kind of authority. In fact, he'd already claimed that authority at this point, and the Sanhedrin knew it. But they're trying to make him say it. They, they want to have something to accuse him of in a few days here, and it's a setup. But the Sanhedrin here actually had an authority problem. They had an authority problem. A lot of folks have an authority problem. It's human nature in general. We have a problem with authority. And really the cry of the age is found in Luke 19, 14. We will not have this man to rule over us, whoever this man is. We will not have this person over us. It's a problem in the home. There's hardly a week that goes by where I don't have to deal with some kids who are bristling up at home. Why? Sinful human nature. They have an authority problem. And wives will bristle at their husband's authority. And at the workplace, you'll find the, the workers bristling against the boss's authority. You find even in the military, the private having a hard time submitting to the uh, sergeant. You find when it comes to civil authority, and, and hardly a week goes by where you don't find a clash between the public and the police. I mean, you read about it now all the time. You say, what's the deal here? Authority problem. You find it spiritually speaking. You find it in churches as well. We have an authority problem. And now we find the Sanhedrin and they have a, a problem with the authority that Christ had. We see this contentious rivals, first of all. But secondly, we see this conditional riddle. This conditional riddle. We find that the, the uh, Sanhedrin comes to Christ and they say, we, we have a problem with your authority. Where do you think you get it? And Christ turns it right back at them. And he has a question for them. In verse 29, says, Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Notice he says, I will ask you one question. In the Greek meaning one thing. It really comes down to one thing. We're going to talk about authority here. And if I could just sum up your life as one thing. Whose authority are you living under? Whose authority are you living by? Where do you take your cue from? It's a good question. Society? I mean, that's where most people really are taking their cue. It's horizontally. It's, it's what is society doing? And we watch each other, and that's, that's what we take our cue off of. What is the culture doing? Where is society going? You know, you have the Supreme Court now, and they're, they're passing laws that dictate what is right and what is wrong by their own standard, and it's continually changing. It's changed a lot even in my lifetime. There are things they're saying that are okay now that years ago they say, oh no, no, that's not okay. But you see, the standard has changed. And now we talk about what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable and unacceptable based on what society says. But Christ says, I have one question for you. 
What is your authority? What authority are you living by? What authority are you living under? Who do you take your cue from? Hollywood? You know, Hollywood has an agenda. Did you know that? And they make these movies and, and they try and shape people's views and mindset by, by the message in the movie. And, and by the way, the small screen has done even more to brainwash people. It's been said that there is nothing in the last 50 years that has shaped the thinking of Americans more than television set. And we've gone a long ways from Ward Cleaver to Homer Simpson, haven't we? And, and we wonder why we have a rebellious problem with our youth in this country here. We are being brainwashed more than we realize. Christ said, I have one question. Where do you get your authority, your thinking? This one thing, I just want to know this one thing. Where do you get your thinking? From the news media? Really? <laughs> you say, well, they're, they're fair and unbiased and impartial. And No, they're not. They never will be. Not as long as we have a depraved human nature. I mean, they still have their way of thinking. This one question I have for you. Where do you get your authority? Where do you get your authority theologically? Think about that. Who do you listen to as far as TV preachers or radio preachers? Who ministers to you? Is the, is the preacher even born again? I mean, that would be a good starting point, wouldn't it? You say, well, they're all going to heaven. Are you sure? There's going to be a lot of preachers, according to Matthew 7, on Judgment Day, who are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we preach in your name? And Christ says unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Is that preacher even saved? Is he even born again? You know, I know a lot of preachers, and they say, well, I don't believe in that, that born-again stuff. Well, Jesus said in John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, two lines of thought here. Number one, he's never going to go to heaven. But number two, except a man be born again, he can't see it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the kingdom of God. How can you be a preacher without being saved, without being born again? The big question is, whose authority are people following? Now, notice in verse 29, Christ says, I will also ask you one question. And so he asks a question. And by the way, that was a common practice uh, amongst the rabbis. It helped it to sink in. He put the matter on a deeper level of thinking. They often say, he who frames the question wins the debate. Isn't that the truth? And so he said, I'll ask you the question. By the way, uh, we don't put God on trial. God asks the questions. God does the probing. God's not on the defense. We are. We're the ones who answer to God. We got that thing all backwards. God does not answer to man. God is not accountable to us. We read in Romans 14, 12, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We need to get that straight because we have a society that, that tries to keep God off balance in his face saying, well, if there is a God, why did he do this? And why did he allow that? And so on. No, God doesn't have to answer our questions. We're not accountable to him. Let's get the, the shoe on the right foot. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God one day. Now, we find here the greatest theologians alive and they've come to Christ and they think they've figured out a way to tie him in a knot, but the Lord does a total reversal on him here and he turns it back at him. We read in Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled. In other words, come out on top. Christ knew how to handle this bunch. 
So here's the question. In verse 30, Christ says, The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. Answer me. Like, well, the baptism of John, was it just kind of a man-made invention? Or was it God's idea? Was it spawned in heaven? Was it sanctioned in heaven? That's the question here. Now, we find out that John got his baptism from God. The ministry of John the Baptist was certainly sanctioned from heaven. In John 3.27, John the Baptist answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. He tells us right there, I was sent from God. I'm on a mission from God. Uh, Heaven has sanctioned my ministry here. He tells us uh, the importance of that. Now, he mentions, Christ mentions here, baptism. And that's an important ordinance, isn't it? That's how we enter the New Testament church. It really is an important thing. It doesn't save us. It doesn't wash sin away. Man has taken baptism and kind of reinvented it. But it's something that was invented in the mind of God scripturally. It was ordained of God. It was sanctioned by God. And we dare not change it. Religion today has changed it and improvised. And baptism today is now done through other methods uh, like pouring water on a person or, or sprinkling water on a person. It was never meant to be that. Because the very word baptize really is uh, an, it's an invented word. It, it comes from the word immersion. And baptism can only mean one thing. It's to submerge somebody beneath water. To plunge or dip or put beneath. That's what the word means. And it's water. And so we have no right to come along and change or improvise or, or add babies to the formula here and say, well, let's bring babies in and, and baptize them when it's not even scriptural baptism and you don't find a baby baptized anywhere in the Bible. In fact, study your New Testament. It's unthinkable. It's just unthinkable. It's just not there. Now, we dare not fudge how God has laid it out to be. Folks, we want to be scriptural, okay? We want to do it God's way. So what is Jesus implying here when he says the baptism of John? Was it of men? Was it just something John invented here? Or was it of God? What is he implying here? He's speaking here of the importance of authority. Where did John get his authority? We live in this world, folks, and everything seems to be relative. I mean, people are just speculating. Who knows if it's right or if it's wrong. It's kind of fuzzy. It's kind of skewed. It's kind of abstract. And who knows? We live in this world of relativity. There's no right. There's no wrong. But, folks, that's not true according to the Bible. That's not true according to God. We find a God who tells us what's right and what is wrong, and he holds us accountable for it. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he kind of swept it under the carpet. Nine months went by, and he thought, coast is clear. But God was not okay with it. God was not cool with it. And God sent the prophet Nathan to say, that was wrong. And it was wrong. God says some things are wrong here. You know, (laughs) Ahab showed up he found Elijah after a three-year drought and he said are you the guy who's troubling Israel and Elijah goes no you're the guy who's troubling Israel you're wrong you know God tells us when we're wrong John the Baptist put his his forefinger between the eyes of old Herod and he said it's wrong for you to have your brother's wife and it was Paul reasoned with Felix of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come and Felix trembled why because God is against some things. Jesus is against some things. And it's not, it's not this relative wishy-washy society like we'd like it to be. There are some things, and God says that is wrong. 
Christ drew the line and Christ spoke with authority. We read in Mark 1.22 that they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Can you just see one of these Bible studies with the scribes? Well, here's a verse. Here's what I think it means. What do you think it means? Well, here's what I think it means. What do you think it means? And I think the people had had it up to here. Because they knew they were, the people knew that the scribes were hurting themselves. And finally, Christ comes along and he speaks with authority. And it's like a breath of fresh air. And oh, this is wonderful. The Bible says he spoke as one that had authority and not as the scribes. The way it is is the way it is. And Christ just told it the way it was. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm really weary of relativity. Aren't you? God help us in this society in which we live. Well, we see the contentious rivals, and we see the conditional riddle, and then finally we see the confused responders. Here's the Sanhedrin, and and their feet are put to the fire, and and Christ says, the baptism of John, is it of men, or is it of God? They're hymning and they're hawing. You know, we read this in 1 Peter 2.15, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of of foolish men. Christ is going to do that to this bunch here now. It's kind of a catch-22, and, and we find here that the Sanhedrin is cursed if they say this or cursed if they, they say that. And Christ is kind of, I picture him hands on his hips going, well, answer me. Notice in verse 31, and they reason with themselves saying, if we shall say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Can you picture them off to the side? They withdrew over to a corner, and they're between a rock and a hard place, and, and uh, they're going, what do we say? I mean, John the Baptist had a reputation. He'd been dead for a while, but everybody knew he was, he was a, a, a destined to be a priest, or born at least in the priesthood, that he had the, the power of Elijah on him, that he was bold. In fact, there hadn't been a prophet, get this, from Malachi to Matthew, which is 400 years so after a 400-year dearth spiritually, John the Baptist comes on the scene. Oh, and the boldness and the power. And he was feared by Herod. He was hated by Herodias. He was loved by the common people. They absolutely loved him. He was filled with the Spirit. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one who said, well, one is coming who is much greater than me. I'm not worthy to unloose his sandals. He's the Son of God. John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 28, Jesus said, For I say unto you, Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Think about that. There are a lot of great prophets in the Old Testament. I could stand here for about five minutes and name them. But Jesus himself, the Son of God, said that among those born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. By the way, that was a title God gave him, the Baptist. I heard a well-known, nationally known radio preacher preaching one time, and he called him John the Baptizer. I said, wait a minute, that is not right, and he knows that's not true. He is a, he is a scholar and a theologian and a seminary grad, and he's a stickler on the meaning of words. John the Baptizer? No, no, it's a title, folks. It's not a description of what he did. It's a personal pronoun. It's, it's God giving him a title. And in fact, baptize or baptism is, is an invented word off of this title, Baptist. Baptist. Jesus Christ, think about this, started his church with disciples from John the Baptist. That was his foundation. 
They were John the Baptist converts, and they had Baptist baptism. Question. If you were baptized by a Mormon elder, what would that make you? It would make you a Mormon, right? If you were baptized by a Catholic priest, what would that make you? It would make you a Catholic, right? If you were baptized by a Lutheran minister, what would that make you? It would make you Lutheran, right? Who baptized Jesus? John the Presbyterian? John the Methodist? <laughs> I mean, think about it. You go, oh, Pastor, I, I, I don't get that out of the Bible. You're right. You won't get it out of the Bible. It's there to stay. Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist. And when it came time to replace Judas, the lost apostle, guess what the prerequisite was? Well, we read about it in Acts one twenty-two. Beginning from the baptism of John, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection? You know, it's a stubborn fact, but he had to have Baptist baptism. And the greatest theologians, and none of them Baptists, down through the centuries have all agreed on the same thing. That you can trace the roots of the Anabaptists back to the first century. It was a history of Baptist churches. You say, Pastor, what would you be if you weren't a Baptist? I'd be ashamed of myself. That's what I'd be. We read this in Luke 7 and verse 29. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. The baptism of John, was it of men or of God? Well, the people at that time understood it's of God. Justified of God being baptized with the baptism of John. So the baptism of John was from God. It was from heaven. Now, the Sanhedrin didn't dare admit that. Go back to the passage and notice verse number 32. They're still mulling this thing over. But if we shall say of men... Well, they feared the people. For all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. It's getting a little political here. So they're stuck. They're stuck. So in verse 33, they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. They said, Well, we can't say. And who are they kidding? They knew. They knew that John was a man of God. They'd already checked him out years earlier. They'd been investigating him. We read back in John 1.19 that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? Who are you? He told them. He told them. And now they don't want to admit that his baptism was sanctioned from heaven. Here's a principle, and it's one we need to remember as Christian people even. When we refuse to acknowledge truth, we wound our conscience. When we refuse to acknowledge truth, we dig in, we get stubborn, and what happens is our hearts get harder. And especially for the lost, you find that God rejects you. When you reject truth, God rejects you. We find in Hosea 4.6, God says, Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. What's the problem with the Sanhedrin? Well, good night. They'd seen miracle after miracle. Deaf ears open, blind eyes open. Dead people raised. They'd heard sermon after sermon, given truth after truth, and they are still rejecting it. Read Proverbs 1 when you get home if you have time. And you'll realize that God stretches out His hand with truth and gives opportunity only to a point. And when that truth is rejected, God withdraws. Back in Genesis, we find these words. God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. 
My spirit shall not always strive with man. When we harden our hearts, God dims the light. May I say that again? When we harden our hearts, God dims the light. God dims the light. There are none so blind as those who will not see. We find that Christ in Matthew 15, 14 says of the Sanhedrin, Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Christ had already written them off. There's no grace here. He basically just, at this point, putting them in their place. He's written them off. And it's funny that these educated theologians, with all their degrees and the fact they copied the Bible out as scribes, and they'd, they, they, they memorized the Torah, and they'd gone to rabbinical school, and they had all these, these, uh, these things going for them, but they missed the Messiah. And along come the humble, the poor, the fishermen, the tax collectors, the harlots, and they get it. They get it. You know, we read this in Luke 10, 21, that in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. He's talking about how God had hidden these truths from those stiff-necked, proud Pharisees and, and uh, Sadducees and scribes and elders and revealed them unto the, the down-and-outers, the lowly. And it takes humility, by the way, to get saved. Maybe you have heard the plan of salvation before. Maybe you have heard how to get to heaven according to the Word of God. But you've hardened your heart. Or you've dug in. Or you've made excuses. You've been stubborn. You've been self-righteous. You've been prideful. I'm telling you, it takes humility to be saved. God tells us so. God is the authority. Let that resonate in our head. By what authority do we do this or we do that? All that we believe, there has to be a standard. Otherwise, it's just your opinion. It's just my opinion. I mean, why is murder wrong? I don't know. Why is rape wrong? Well, I don't know. If we don't have some standard... You know, there are countries where the more deceptive you can be. There are cultures. There are people groups. The more you can deceive your neighbor, hey, 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 woo-hoo, that's good, you know. They just don't have any moral compass. How do we know there are some things that are wrong? What makes abortion wrong? I was just having a Bible study with somebody yesterday. Why do we know abortion is wrong? Otherwise, we're just, you know, leaving it up to some judges to vote on and, and seeing where popular opinion goes. Or is it that the Bible implies that life begins at conception and that the soul is given at conception and that the soul is really you. The body is just something the soul lives inside. I mean, it changes your whole perspective. Why do we think that sodomy is wrong? Well, could it be that as we look at the human body, we see some design there and intelligence behind it? Maybe the realization the body was never designed for that? I mean, what is our standard? How is it that we know this is right and this is wrong? How do we get to heaven? There's a big question. I mean, there are hundreds of religions out there, and everybody has their do list. Have you noticed? Do this, do that, do the other thing, and you'll make it. But everybody's list is different. How do we know what we're supposed to do? Where's the truth? Good question. Well, Christ said in John 17, 17, as he prayed to the Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thank God 
we have a source of truth. We have a standard. We have an anchor. Something to give us our bearings and our moorings. And here it is. Thy word is truth. The word of God is truth. Not some man-made tradition. Not what's taught out of some catechism that some guy wrote. What does the Bible say? We need to check out the Bible. This is the final authority. What does it say? What does it teach? Every person here has a responsibility to dig into the truths of this book and find out what it has to say on the issues, especially about salvation. Because we have an authority, and I thank God for it, the Word of God. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.